Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Six sensational additions to the Warner Archive Collection highlight this week's Warner Archive Collection podcast. And the first is always a moment for celebration when we have anything new that's blue. And this is new to us on Blu-ray and new to you, the consumer on Blu-ray, because it's a latest television season of a television phenomenon that is normally seen on the cable network Showtime. But if you're a collector of this series, you already have seven seasons of it because this is season eight of Shameless from erstwhile Warner Brothers television producer John Wells, who has brought us such greats as ER and The West Wing. Uh, John Wells has, for the last eight years, been bringing us Shameless on the Showtime Network, and we are now bringing you season eight of Shameless on Blu-ray to continue its trajectory in the superior format. New on DVD, we bring you the fourth season and the final season of the great animated Static Shock, which fans have been celebrating since we liberated it on DVD and brought it back to you. And now we finalize the quadrilogy of seasons, Mm. I guess we could say, with the fourth season of Static Shock. And then we have returned to territory, or are returning to territory, we have not been through in a while, and that's the great Samuel Goldwyn Library, which is our proud pleasure to present on DVD. And uh, we have two classics with the great Ronald Coleman from 1929, Condemned, and from 1930, The Devil to Pay. And then we also have a joyous romantic comedy with Miriam Hopkins and Joel McRae called Woman chases man. And then last but not least, we take a terrific Blu-ray, which Warner Home Video released in 2012 and has subsequently gone out of print. We bring it back into print. It's the same exact Blu-ray disc that was available before, but with a much nicer label and much (laughs) nicer packaging. It is one of the great classics of American cinema. It is Vincent Minnelli's masterful musical, Meet Me in St. Louis from 1944. So let's get on with the podcast and talk about Shameless, season eight on Blu-ray. Matt, briefly, what's the deal with Shameless? I like that you said briefly because we haven't talked about this on the podcast How before. How could we? It's yeah. never part of our but there, oeuvre. There's been seven seasons. But, you know, you may have, might not have heard us talking about it on the podcast, but we've talked about it quite a bit at work because... Shameless, which is, uh, this series is based off of a British series of the same name. Written by Paul Abbott. Which brought us some incredible uh, talent and now everybody sees in the U.S. But this is shot very much so on the lot uh, near where the ER stuff was. John Wells knows how to make Chicago appear in Burbank like magic. Ironically... Like, or not ironically, shooting in the same exact sets, which I always found fascinating. And so for the past uh, seven or so years, we walk by the Shameless sets every day. So when I pop in the Blu-ray and, of course, see these sets come to life once again, because I've followed the show a bit, there's a little pitter patter in my heart. We should mention that the show star is one of the great William. actors yeah. of modern times, yes. William H. Macy. He really is the heart, soul, and essence of what makes this show so great. But, but it is an ensemble and, cast. And, and particularly Emmy Rossum playing Fiona is yeah. sort of the... Uh, 
She's the spine that keeps the dysfunctional Gallagher family functional. It's basically about a lower class uh, family in Chicago who is barely uh, keeping it together, but they managed to now for uh, eight seasons. Imagine everything about the Waltons and turn it upside down, and <laughs> it, you've got the galaxy. And put it in a contemporary yes, setting. Yeah. In a contemporary setting, but yet uh, the miracle is, of course, like the Waltons, they stay together. Now, the show deals heavily and frankly with issues of addiction. Especially uh, this season. Especially this season. Now, this season were to be a 1960s Marvel comic, mm. the cover would have emblazoned Frank no more. Because Frank Gallagher in this season attempts to go straight and is now Francis. This is, and I will call it now the comedy spine of the season, is Frank making amends for everything that he's uh, done wrong in his own way. He's following his own program. Now, if you haven't seen this series before, we and you're a loyal, whack viewer, yeah. uh, viewer and collector and don't necessarily watch the Showtime Network, we would recommend that you use whatever legal means necessary to catch yourself up, and uh, you might want to even pick up the prior seasons on mm -hmm. Blu-ray. Mm. And if you have been buying the seasons on Blu-ray, you can be happy that instead of being consigned to mere DVD, that the that high-definition glories of Shameless continue as we bring you Season 8. And Season 9 probably will follow because Season 9 will be on TV shortly. Yes. I mean, and this just went off the air in January. Right. So this is pretty quick. Oh, Whether it's your first time or your eighth time, you're going to be delighted to own it. And if you're a fan of Gotham, mm. you'll find something that you like about Shameless in that there's a regular cast member, Shameless, is going to be a familiar ginger on Gotham. Could it be Amy Pond? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Let's talk about Static Shock Season 4 as we say goodbye to one of our most beloved uh, resurrections on DVD of an animated favorite. Now, uh, not only does this release finish off releasing Static. With this release, the entire Bruce Timm-influenced DC animated universe that began with Batman the Animated Series is now available on home entertainment. After doing Zeta last year, now with Static yeah. out, that's it, folks. You can have this, the whole caboodle. This ended in 2004 and goes out with the bang. And it also starts with the bang in that we get a great season beginning where uh, future Virgil gets, gets sent to the future where yes. he gets to team up with Batman Beyond Terry McGinnis, and it's an episode that we then see reflected in Justice League Unlimited's Once in Future, and we included that as a bonus on the set. That's right. Also, there's a crossover with uh, Green Lantern. Which is great, because we get to have an extended moments where Phil Lamar is talking to Phil Lamar. Which? Because if you don't know, he does both Jon yeah. Stewart and Virgil. And he gets to have a lot of conversations with himself. Which uh, he may do in his own home as well. Yeah, one could hope. Then there's a legendary episode. Uh, you know, uh, sports fans from 2004 will be excited with the episode Hoop Squad. Oh, yeah. Do you know who's in that one, Dan? Do you know any of those sports figures? Yao Ming was one uh, who is still well-known. Well, it's sort of like a backdoor pilot. Turns yeah, out that right? these members of the NBA are secretly superheroes. In this <laughs> case, where Static Shock actually did have NBA stars voice characters in the past, yeah. these are actually voice actors, but the characters are very real. But it could have been like Super Globetrotters on Oh, it definitely is. Hoop Squad is a, is a new, cleaned-up take of Super Globetrotters. It, so if you don't have any of the seasons 
Simpsons, this is a unique, real, I would say landmark in, a, in mm-hmm. modern mm-hmm. animation. And the fourth season certainly holds up to the excellence of even the first. I mean, you know, it's sort of a testament to Dwayne McDuffie and the other writers for Static Shock because they found a way to carve out a path for the show, which was both sort of superhero action fun, but also... Saturday morning uh, mm-hmm. action for children's television. I mean, they're sort of, yeah. uh, um, Matt was saying, or there's sort of a Fat Albert vibe to the show. Not I, in the funny, but in like, no. you know, we're going to tastefully and seriously take on issues that kids confront in school today yeah. and give it a superhero spin. Like, uh, literally, there was a uh, the rubber band uh, kid who has uh, dyslexia. And they deal with it, and deal with it in an entertaining way that teaches the kids. This is still something that is needed in society, Dan. Absolutely. Now where, more than ever. Yeah, where is the educational animated content for kids? It's on the Warner Archive collection where That's you can buy right. Static Shock Season 4 for the very first time. <laughs> now we're going to make a very sharp left turn back into cinema history and that fable time we talk about so often when silent movies gave way to sound movies. And Ronald Coleman was a huge star of the silent screen in the 1920s and certainly had absolutely no problem adjusting to the sound medium because his diction, his presence, everything about him was perfect for the medium of adding audio to the picture. I mean, at this point, having seen a number of his like 1929, 1930 films, it is remarkable how prepared Ronald Coleman was for talkies. Well, I mean, right. almost more than any other actor. His just, roots yeah. prepared him. Yeah. We, and we've seen enough of it now that I have to remind myself. How early it is. Not only how early it is, but also of the mysterious reputation later. Like it's like when you see these as a contemporary would see them. And, and this one, again, 1929 is a funny year. It can get very awkward. But this is not, I don't think this is Not awkward. condemned, no. no. I mean, condemned is almost like Goldwyn as a producer showing people what cinema can be. Well, and the thing that's interesting about this film, Condemned, which is the first of the three Samuel Goldwyn films we're going to talk about today, the first two starring Ronald Coleman, is that Condemned, not unlike a lot of Goldwyn's films, was very successfully re-released many, many years later. Mm. And they just gave it a new new artwork. And uh, they kind of uh, changed the title a little bit in the way that the poster looked. Uh, Condemned. uh, Island. Well, basically, that's exactly <laughs> what it said. Yeah. You know, D- Dan um, and I were talking about that there should be a subgenre of Devil's Island uh, oh, films. I think well, there very much already is. There's <laughs> one that we don't own with Jim Brown called I Escaped that's from right. Devil's Island that you must see. <laughs> you know, we don't own all the great movies, just most of them. But um, Condemned is a very early uh, sound entree into being uh, captive on Devil's Island and Ronald Coleman goes through the same path that we saw a couple of years ago when we released the Karloff Devil's Island, but in in a different capacity. This is really a terrific film, and it's one that uh, you really just don't get a chance to see unless you buy this DVD. It's pretty much impossible to see it, and uh, we're really, really honored to be able to be bringing out such a fine mm-hmm. film from the early Goldwyn Sound Library. And there's like a, a number of really, really good performances in this film. Uh, 
Dudley Diggs as the jealous warden. Uh, yeah. We were the just wa- talking about... The warden is great. We were just talking about Louis Wolheim in uh, Shanghai. Oh, yeah. He's in this playing an unrepentant uh, woman killer mm-hmm. who is actually one of the most relatable characters in the film. Yeah. Uh, Ronald Coleman is terrific in this. There's a really beautiful chase love story. There's some mm-hmm. horrifying pre-code content. I'm referring to the monkey here, people, which you'll oh. see. But utilized correctly yeah. to establish villainy oh. where it was deserved. Ronald Coleman plays Michelle, who's a, who's a gentleman thief. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a very Ronald Coleman, debonair, suave, cynical character. He's his, on Solo. And there's a beautiful opening on a ship. Uh, and mm-hmm. the ship is, it's a prison ship, and it's a horrible, horrible storm, and people are in misery, and people are crying, and we focus in on two of the, our two future main characters, one of whom is laughing, which yeah. is Ronald Coleman, the <laughs> other one is singing. So these are two men who are ready for hell, and sure enough, they get it, but inside hell, they discover innocence. Yes. Now, there's a different kind of hell in our next film, which is <laughs> The Devil to Pay from 1930. And this is very much a pre-code movie. Yeah, this is a very much pre-code yep. comedy of manners and the bedroom farce. And uh, at its heart, Ronald Coleman has perhaps the worst possible dilemma of all time <laughs> because he has to pick between Myrna Loy or Loretta Young. Yeah, it's a tough one. I would definitely want both. <laughs> and uh, which, one of the which things he manages which, yeah. for a while. One of the things Samuel Goldwyn had to do was uh, he did not have very many people being an independent producer. He didn't have very many people under contract, mm-hmm. so he had to borrow both Myrna Loy and Loretta Young from Warner Brothers in order to make this film. But a very motley cast, indeed. Mm-hmm. He put together, and if you're going to make a film about a love triangle, what better casting than Ronald Coleman, Loretta Young, and Myrna Loy? Devil to Pick could very well actually have had the same title as our next film, Woman Chases Man. That's right, <laughs> because instead of a pre-code boudoir comedy, you have a screwball postcode rom-com with two irresistible leading players, Miriam Hopkins and Joel McRae, who are just terrific Yeah, this, this is film. their fifth and final pairing, but they are an overlooked, underrated romantic comedy team they're, supreme. They're really they're good definitely together. Definitely a team. There are sparks. They, especially in the setup and, and the, you know, like the, like the first half, it rolls and it rolls unexpectedly, and you, as the audience, are are literally tossing in when the I, waves. When I was in film school in college, they were. I took a class on mm-hmm. screwball comedies. Every film was known to me except this one, and the oh, teacher funny. was particularly creative. I thought in selecting this to go along with films like The Awful Truth and Bringing Up Baby, because it fits perfectly in it, that it does domain. And it's that kind of quick-witted writing and excellence in craft. But it also, it's very funny because the film starts off uh, sort of like bringing a baby. Mm-hmm. It starts off with witty sophistication and then careens into outright farce. But we have Joel McRae playing uh, Joel McRae, who later on, of course, was one of the greatest Western actors of all time yes. because he, he liked to have a certain dignity. Uh, this is the pre-dignified Joel McRae, oh. who's marvelous at playing these sort of Fop. foppish, nebbish, yeah. who's got an inner, super sexy, handsome core. It's an interesting comedic character that you you don't see that often, but when it's pulled off, it works because he is a foil 
to his father who is um, crazy. His father is crazy and has wasted a fortune and the son is frugal and has gained a fortune. But the father needs access to the son's fortune and the son has an Achilles heel, which is drop of alcohol and he becomes a spendthrift. And so, and Miriam Hopkins is trying to break into a man's world as an architect. And so uh, she decides that she's going to get the money for the father from the son. And the thing that makes it clear that it's the 30s is the father's scheme <laughs> is a low-income housing development. Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. We're back there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> which, which his son is like, I don't really know about this investment. It sounds kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't even <laughs> playing Robert Moses. But no. we won't even go into no. that. No. Woman Chases Man is... Pure entertainment and uh, very uncharacteristic of Samuel Goldman Productions. Mm-hmm. Didn't make too many films like that. He made some great comedies with people like Eddie Cantor and Danny Kaye, but he didn't make comic films that often that were just breezy, light, romantic fun like this. Being an independent producer, he chose his vehicles very carefully, and that's why so many of his films are so notable today. This one's been forgotten. We're here to correct that. We heartily recommend Woman Chases Man. Now we move from the unknown, the relatively (laughs) unknown, to the incredibly best known and one of the great classic musicals in the Warner Brothers library from the MGM classic portion of our library is Vincent Minnelli's Meet Me in St. Louis originally released in 1944 and uh, was given a very royal treatment by our home entertainment division for its 50th anniversary and its 60th anniversary by the time it hit its 70th anniversary it was already on Blu-ray for a while and we're just on the cusp of its 75th and that would be next year but it's gone out of print it was in a very uh, fancy blu-ray book and it was going for a very high price but with with no offense meant to anybody really inappropriate artwork that didn't at all reflect the beautiful artwork that was originally used for the film's release in the 1940s so we've restored the original artwork to the packaging and the disc inside that very expensive Blu-ray book is now available in a much more affordable elite case with the original theatrical key art as its source for the packaging. And this is a story of a family at the turn of the century, the last century, uh, built around four seasons and the dilemma of a family where the father has to move to New York for a big banking job. And around it were some wonderful original songs and it was really a smash technicolor hit for Judy Garland as the star and Vincent Vanelli as the director. We really don't need to say anything more about it except the disc is a phenomenal presentation. It used our ultra-resolution process to bring the Technicolor to Blu-ray in a spectacular fashion. The audio is mixed to 5-1 genuinely from multi-microphonic angles that enabled us to be able to create true stereo Mm. from recordings from 1944. Very, very, very impressive work. And so now that is available once again. Popular 
regularly yeah. priced, and you can get it wherever you get our Warner Archive product. And speaking of Warner Archive product, we're talking about our wonderful Blu-rays and DVDs. We also want to remind you that if you're a digital consumer or you're a digital and physical consumer, but like the convenience of digital ownership and transaction, that our classic films, our wonderful free podcasts, almost 10 years worth of them, and uh, soundtracks from our sister company, Water Tower Music, are all available, along with classic Warner Brothers' own television product, in our iTunes room. You go to iTunes.com backslash Warner Archive, and you will find the Warner Archive room on iTunes, where classic entertainment from the big screen spanning multiple decades going all the way back to the 30s is available for ownership or rental digitally, and you can see a lot of films in HD that haven't been released on Blu-ray yet. Go to the Warner Archive room at iTunes today and see what fun is in store. And now comes the portion of our podcast we seldom get to experience of late, but happily someone has come to our rescue with correspondence. We have one letter. Matthew, if people want to send us a letter and ask us questions, where should they send them? To Warner Archive Podcast, 3400 Riverside Drive, B160-4, Burbank, California, 91522. And with this letter, they also wrote USA. Because this letter came par avion, as far away from... And I I love that uh, he wrote it on the back of the envelope. This is from Column from Woodlands, Roman Bank, Rushbury... Shropshire, Shropshire, UK. Sometimes I just say things now, to Matt, annoy you. Matt, as a Whovian, you must apologize oh. to Her Majesty's subjects because we love our British brethren and yeah. all the wonderfulness they've brought for- into our world. I forgot world. to point this out, which I pointed out to George, is that this went through the Royal Mail. And boy, Dan, can you pronounce that name from Wales? Yeah, sure. It's Kairagogimro. Which we all recognized in writing because that's, that's Wales because we watched the BBC. That's and where right. Doctor Who is, is, is a shot. Okay, here we go. Here's the letter. Greetings from the UK. Sorry this isn't crayon written, but my handwriting is so bad, even I can't read it sometimes. Hope this script typeface will do. See, and he printed it in red. And I would understand. Same, same here. I'm a regular listener to your podcasts, even though I can't obtain, or in the case of Blu-rays, Uh, Many of your releases, I enjoy your scholarly discussions of classic movies. I have two questions. I've often heard you refer to the fact that you have previously remastered movies for DVD release and have now remastered again for Blu-ray. May I ask why, when you're going to all the trouble of remastering, you don't go for the, quote, full Blu-ray every time on the basis of do it once, do it right? Is it my understanding that you can convert down a Blu-ray scan to DVD, but not the other way around? Is that right? Great question. And to do it right the first time would have been wonderful. Our business celebrated its ninth birthday less than a month ago as of this recording. And when we started, we couldn't remaster anything because we were a tiny little group with no budget. Now we're a tiny little group with a larger budget, but tiny compared to everything else that goes on at Warner Brothers. And when we started remastering, we could only afford 
to remaster for DVD. That meant that we couldn't afford the hours and hours of color correction that are required and the hours and hours of meticulous cleanup that are required. The lower resolution of DVD compared to Blu-ray allowed us to bring a product that was better than anything that existed before, but we couldn't have dreamed that we'd be able to afford to get into the Blu-ray business. But that did happen three or four years later. And as our business has continued to grow and prosper, we've been able to reinvest in the business by mastering to the highest possible quality when it comes to Blu-ray. So in, a, in effect, one of the things we've had to sacrifice is being able to release as many DVDs as we used to because we use our limited budget for what people want most, which is Blu-ray. And it all depends on the motion picture because some films are so rare and obscure that the revenue they're going to generate for our company, because we are a public company and we have responsibility to our our shareholders and our financial officers to bring in profit. So to balance the need for profitability along with our need to satisfy the needs of consumers is a delicate balance that requires us to do the best job possible in selecting things that are going to be profitable for release. So we initially started remastering on DVD, and a lot of those titles were films that either hadn't been released in home entertainment at all, or in some cases, they were released in pan and scan form, and there was no 16 by 9 widescreen master. And we remastered over a thousand films in that regard. By doing so, we also were exposed to the film element condition of a thousand of our 7,000 feature films, and that gave us a light uh, into oh, this film needs to be restored, and we need to bring the negative in from the, where it's the nitrate is stored because we don't store any nitrate on the lot. And that eventually led to restoration and remastering in certain cases. And this is all an evolution and a process. So when we've had to do it twice, and this has happened, I would say, over a dozen times, what an honor it is to be able to revisit what we did the best job we could seven or eight years ago at the time for the market. Movies like The Green Slime, mm -hmm. we were taking a risk putting it out 16 by 9 letterbox when all that was around was a crappy 4 by 3 master that had been on VHS. So that was a quantum leap forward, but did we ever dream we'd be able to afford to make it into a stellar Blu-ray? No. And it isn't just movies like The Green Slime when we can go and restore 17 minutes that have been cut out of the Seawolf for, right. four, for 70 years and work from nitrate elements. That's how far we've come. That's an example of, of what he was saying, though. When that was a case where when we made the master for the Blu-ray, it was easy to make the DVD. Right, right. So to be clear, if you make a master for DVD standards, almost all of those masters that we did were high-definition masters right. that we down-converted to DVD. But if we were to try to release them as is, as a right. Blu-ray, they would look awful. And the sad thing is that there are a lot of Blu-rays out there from other entities that 
aren't worthy of the format that are filled with debris, scratches, dirt, and film damage. And uh, we're not going to have our Blu-rays sullied by that kind of thing. If it's a matter of you get to see it not perfect or not at all, that's when we can say, okay, this is very limited audience and it comes out on a DVD. But if we think that it has a wider audience or the DVD is so successful that we know it will succeed as a Blu-ray and the film is worthy of Blu-ray, then we'll go that extra mile. And I'd also just like to say that in the nine years we've started, Dan's computer aside, technology has changed. <laughs> right. And, and also we you should mention films like The Seawolf and Hell on Frisco Bay, which we released last year. We never got to release a DVD. Right. There never had been a DVD. So we got to use our beautiful new master and release it on both DVD and Blu-ray. And there will be more of those rarities to come. My second question. Is there any hope of Gold Diggers of 1935 ever being reissued? I'm surprised it hasn't been as it contains a classic lullaby of Broadway routine. Gold Diggers of 1935 is still available yeah. as part of a multi-feature. Uh, so if you want to buy it, it is still available through traditional brick-and-mortar retail, and that content is also available online. However, I don't think it's inconceivable that at some time we wouldn't put out a standalone reissue of the single disc. Yeah. And I hope and pray someday that the means will be possible that we can remaster the film in proper form for Blu-ray. I don't think that's we, out of the question, but certainly not anything that's going to happen We've tomorrow. We've talked pretty extensively about the Gold Diggers series yes, here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, which is a Warner Archive favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for all the dedication and hard work you put into bringing Warner Brothers classic movies back to life. Best wishes, Column. Thank you, Colm, and thank you to everybody who has sent us letters in the past. And if you listen to this podcast and you haven't sent us a letter before, we, we heartily urge you to do so. And if you don't want to invest in the U.S. Post Office and send us a mail using stamps, we have relented somewhat to an alternative cyber solution. You can send us a direct message through Facebook and Twitter saying that you have a letter for the podcast. But no one has chosen to do this yet. But I also wanted to tell Colm, since he's in Shropshire, uh, that my friend Tim is currently building a barrow, so he should oh, check it out. Yes, this mm -hmm. is so true, and I've seen the pictures. One day you might be able to get married in that. Or buried. But married or buried, two important things. And many more important things are in store when we join you for the next Warner Archive podcast. But until that time, I'm George Feldenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. I may be hard to look at, but I'm easy to see. And it's easy to see why you should look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast.